When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome to Herd Tell. It's a Friday. Finally, folks, you made it. It is July the 29th, year of our Lord, 2022. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us to round out your week. We got a lot of show to cover. Got a lot of noise in the news cycle. Going to do our best to try to turn it down. Um, We're going to go overseas, Russia, the refugee crisis and the food crisis that they are purposefully stoking with their illegal war in Ukraine is causing a refugee crisis, and those refugees are being weaponized. We will talk about it. We've talked about it before. Good piece in the dispatch. Going to break that down for us. Also, can't keep a bad penny down or you can't keep a privileged white guy that was on network news down, apparently. Chris Cuomo is back. We'll detail what he slithered out under to try to get back on TV. Uh, Great story in the program. A charity out in the UK has partnered with Tesco, a large supermarket chain over there, giving away over a million free meals and setting up ways to do more. That'll be our feel-good segment in the program on great guest today, Nolan Gray. He has a book out, Arbitrary Lines. It's about zoning in America, how it affects our cities and communities, how it shouldn't, how we should get rid of it, how we should replace it with better policy. Zoning is one of those things that affects everybody, whether you know it or not, either by not having it or having too much of it. And there's really not a whole lot of happy medium in between. We're going to talk about it with Nolan Gray. Great guest, great topic. Gets into all other manners of things like property rights, like taxation, like affordable housing. A lot of issues stem from zoning. Nolan Gray on the program today. Do not miss that. First, we're going to talk about something, and I'm going to try really hard to not get emotional about it because I spent a lot of time being emotional about this because it upset me. I have to sometimes balance principles against pragmatism. Everybody has to do this. I especially work really hard to do this because I have principles on what I believe. And then there's the practical, how you can get things done. And those things don't always align perfectly. So you got to figure out the best way to do things. There's a bill before Congress that got voted down. It's called the PAC Act. Among other things, it had a bunch of funding for the VA. It had a bunch of funding for a bunch of other stuff because they put a lot of bloated expenditures in it like they do for any bill that's important because the idea is you can scream and shout about why do you hate veterans if you don't vote for it. I understand that. But also in this PAC Act was finally, after 17, 18 years of trying to get it done, the burn pit legislation. The reason this is important is because it's fast-tracking care for veterans because the burn pit stuff does not get them VA benefits as it exists right now today. I'm going to parse this out a little bit carefully. If you've got a problem with how I say any of this, that's fine. Let me know. Herdtellshow at gmail.com. Herdtellshow on the Twitter. I'll be happy to hash it out with you. But here's where I'm at on this. And yeah, I'm a little personally invested in this for reasons I'm not going to get into right now. Here's the problem with what I'm hearing from here. 
people are saying, and I know Senator Toomey was one of the main ones that blocked this, was saying, well, they have mandatory spending that's out of control in it, and we're in a fiscal crisis. We spend a lot of time on this program talking about the financial mismanagement of the United States of America. I get it that we're trillions of dollars in debt. I get it that we spend way too much money on superfluous stuff. I get it that government waste is a huge problem. I get that there's $400 billion in this spending bill that probably doesn't need to be in there to get the burn pit stuff done. And they tacked it in there to make sure it got passed in his mandatory spending. I get it. I read the bill, unlike just about everybody on Twitter that's after me saying I didn't. I've actually read this thing. I'm going to phrase it like this. And if you want to call me a hypocrite, go ahead. I'm all for government restraint. This is the wrong mountain to fight that battle on. And this is the wrong place to fly that flag. I get that there's bloat in this bill financially, but $400 billion, let's have an honest moment here. Congress farted that off every three minutes at this, that, and the other during COVID when people were paying attention and screaming for funding to be done for a health-related crisis. But the problem with the veteran stuff is it's out of sight, out of mind, because the rest of the population doesn't use the VA. A very small percentage of the population uses the VA, even though it's the largest integrated healthcare system in America. It's out of sight, out of mind. So when we spend years, almost 20 years now, trying to get some kind of official recognition, not just funding, not just care, recognition about this burn pit stuff. Folks, this isn't smoke. You walked around in this stuff like a heavy fog. You couldn't breathe in it. You couldn't see. It got so bad once we had to shut down an operating airfield until the wind moved and they died it down because the burn pit was so bad. This is not just a little bit of smoke inhalation. This is a very different beast. It is killing people. It is harming people. And we don't even know. But they should have a right to at least investigate it and look into it. So I get it, Senator Toomey and others, that there was too much bloat in this bill. But here's the problem. Senator Corrin came out and said this. He said, well, I'm sure it'll pass some other time. Are you? Because I've seen this slay a hand on other legislation over and over and over again. Much bigger legislation with much bigger headlines. And tomorrow never comes on that legislation. We were right there getting this done. Imperfect as it was. As bad a bloat as it was. But we made perfect the enemy of good. Understand the argument you're making here. If you're going to be consistent about government spending, fine. Show me every government spending bill you ever opposed, and I'll shake your hand and say good for you for your consistency. But we're all a little hypocritical on government spending as long as they spend it on what we want them to spend it on. If you say we can't fix this problem for our veterans, ones that are living and breathing right now or trying to if they can, that need health care right now, you really want your message to them to be please die quietly and less expensively, we're busy doing other things, because that's how it comes across. Sorry if that upsets your feelings and priors. That's how it feels from this end of it. Just passed the freaking legislation, but they didn't. So $400 billion, I hope that was a good price for veterans' lives, because that's what it's going to cost. If they pass some other bill before the end of Congress of the year, I'll admit I was wrong. More heard tell after this. Welcome 
Welcome back to Her Tell, story we've covered periodically over the last few months, especially since Russia uh, illegally invaded Ukraine. Uh, refugees are not just refugees now. Refugees have been weaponized, and Putin is the master of doing this. He uses refugees to try to force them in other parts of the world to try to dictate those countries' behavior. This is something that's happened before. Uh, this piece is in the dispatch. Ivana Stradner wrote it along with Yulian Sabrina Yoha, I think. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But this is in the dispatch. We'll link to it. You can read it. Headline, Russia created a refugee crisis, and Putin is now weaponizing it. This goes along the lines of what we've been saying. We pick it up about a paragraph down. We know Putin's playbook well. After Putin's 2014 invasion of Ukraine, one million Ukrainians took refugee refuge in Poland. Putin's 2015 intervention in Syria pushed 1.4 million refugees into the European Union. While the effects of the refugee crisis are not as apparent as other wartime security threats, these refugee surges exacerbated and caused other social crises, which then continued to the rise of the far right across Europe. Remember, refugees and migration, that's something folks on the far right pound. So, of course, Putin, who spends a lot of his propaganda time stoking the fears, bigotry, and ignorance of the far right up. This plays right into that. It all goes together. Don't let yourself be fooled. Um, as Western leaders have delayed a response to the refugee crisis, the Kremlin built on its successes. While refugee rates from Putin's conflicts in 2014 and 2015 were a million a year, Putin's current war in Ukraine has already displaced 13 million Ukrainians. The Kremlin has engaged in tactics like missile terrorism, where troops launch missile at Ukrainian towns to sow terror and push refugees west. Continues to debate whether Putin would consider fighter jets for Ukrainian defense and escalation. Ukraine is running out of fighter jets and missile defense systems insufficient to protect the civilians. Ratcheting up its missile terrorism is only the Kremlin could intensify the refugee flow to the West. The Kremlin could also second front Ukraine's Western regions by invading Liv from Belarus, which would push up to 10 million Ukrainians towards the European Union. This crisis would be especially acute because millions from Ukraine's east have sought refuge in the country's west, and Poland and Slovakia share that border and have already taken in all the refugees they can handle, and quite a bit more, frankly. The crisis, um, Putin's war, has also increased the potential for influxes of refugees into Europe from Africa. Putin has implemented grain blockades, stolen grain, and targeted agricultural facilities to attack the global food supply. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe, with Russia and Ukraine exporting a third of global wheat supplies. While rising food prices have impacted the whole world, countries in Africa have been hit the hardest. Countries like Tunisia, Somalia, Libya, Eritrea, importing almost half of their wheat from Ukraine. Many of the food and agriculture organizations project that 47 million people who experience acute food insecurities from the war will be in Africa. Nothing suggests that the Kremlin will stop. A deal to lift Russia's Black Sea blockade took months to negotiate. And by the way, they fired off a missile just to show what that was worth the very next day. The morning after the agreed deal, Moscow struck Odessa's port, the very place from which Ukrainian grain is transported to the African Middle East. That was not accidental. That's on purpose. He's telling you what he's going to do. As of Wednesday, uh, this would be Wednesday the 27th, 80 ships are ready to leave Ukrainian ports but aren't able. Finding further workers willing to serve on the crews of the ships is a challenge as Russia provokes this food crisis. It also spreads disinformation in Africa. In May, the Russian U ambassador, Vasily Nebin, he's a deplusivist weasel, I don't care if I pronounce his name right, frankly, asserted that Europe was hoarding grain to use it in grain for weapon exchanges within Africa. Russian's embassy in Egypt and Zimbabwe reported illegal unilateral sanctions and Western interference was to blame. No, don't invade innocent countries. 
liars. Back to the piece. Many Africans will likely attempt to migrate to Europe and general instability in the EU, according to Yale professor Timothy Snyder. Placing the blame on the West in this way creates the potential for extreme resentment towards the West and adds to the already existing risk of instability and conflict in Western Europe. With Russia causing two migration crises, one by bloodshed and the other by famine in the South, the United States must act now in Ukraine. Washington must deliver military capabilities to stop Kremlin's missile terrorism, such as fighter jets and air defense systems. Don't hold your breath. In Africa, the U.S. must counter Russian disinformation campaigns. The refugee crisis caused by Putin's war in Ukraine poses a serious threat to the domestic stability of countries in the EU. The U.S. must rally its European partners and respond on a unified front with military aid and information campaigns before it is too late. That's Ivana Stradner and co-writer. Listen, Russia wins the propaganda war and wins things like this because they're the only one playing the game. Everybody else is just reacting. We need coherent, consistent foreign policy. We didn't get that from our last president. We're not getting it from this president. I'm doubtful that we're going to get it anytime soon. I just don't think the Biden administration's up for it. And the American people's taste for overseas and foreign policy right now has got an isolationist tint to it. They're not going to pay attention to it. But they should, because whether you like it or not, it's a global community. You can go ahead and scream about globalists on your social media all you want to. This is how the world works now. And when things go bad in Africa and they go bad in Eastern Europe, those refugees start flowing into Western Europe and it's purposeful and is being weaponized. And a very evil man in Vladimir Putin is doing it on purpose. We need to recognize it and we need to counter it now because eventually we are going to have to deal with it. And it's going to be more expensive, more costly, more bloody and a lot higher death toll dealing with it later than if we would have dealt with it now. I'm skeptical we will, but we ought to. And at least now you can't say nobody ever told you that this refugee crisis is not only man-made, but it's a weaponized one meant to stoke not just human suffering, but the fears and prejudices of people that don't know any better, but should and disinformation to stoke them even further to try to make things even more chaotic so that the strong men of the world like Vladimir Putin can take advantage of it. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's talk a little zoning, planning, city planning, urban planning, all kinds of planning, or more specifically, the lack thereof. And then you do some planning to try to make up for the non-planning, which makes it even worse. This is the guy to talk about it. He's actually got a whole book out about it. We'll talk about it in just a minute. Uh, he is a graduate of Rutgers. He's been doing all kinds of media on this. I'm excited to talk about this book because it really is an important topic that actually affects just about everybody one way or the other. Nolan Gray joining us. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for the time today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. We usually don't let Rutgers people come on unsupervised, but we'll make an <laughs> exception for you, my friend. Sorry, I'm I'm a WVU guy. The old grudges die. Oh, well, it's even worse. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I'm a Kentucky fan. So um oh. even even worse <laughs> for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, Rutgers doesn't give you a lot to inspire loyalty from an athletics perspective. Uh, yeah. but uh, I, I do bleed blue. People that don't know, a huge amount of WVU's enrollment actually comes from New Jersey. So that's part of the end joke of that. Uh, not that anybody oh, cares yeah. about oh. it. Yeah. Uh, let's start with some nomenclature because here's the problem with things like this is they get buzzwordy online really fast, especially in social media. And people have their little clicks and they'll talk about, you know, affordable housing or they'll talk about zoning. 
Let's take zoning and break it down because that's going to mean different things to different people. Urban folks, they hear zoning, they're going to start thinking, oh, uh, development, maybe urban blight, maybe gentrification. Uh, suburban folks, they hear uh, zoning, they start thinking, oh, they're going to tear down houses and build strip malls. A rural person may never have dealt with zoning and not have any idea what it is other than that thing people argue about on Facebook. Just deal with the nomenclature, break it down for a little bit, what we're actually dealing with when it comes to zoning. Right. So, so zoning is a system of regulation that we have in cities, suburbs, in some rural context that does two things. Uh, the first is it tells you what uses are allowed on every single parcel in a city. Uh, so broadly speaking, that's, you know, residential, commercial, industrial. But then within each of those categories, there are subcategories. So in some residential areas, you are not legally allowed to build an apartment. In others, uh, you maybe can legally build townhouses, but not a duplex. Uh, in about 95% of the typical U.S. metropolitan area, it's illegal to build anything other than a single family home, a detached single family home in a residential area. Uh, we'll talk about that, how that ties into housing affordability issues. The second thing that zoning does is it places uh, strict limits on density. So it tells you what you can build and then how much of that you can build, how much floor area you can build in maybe a commercial development or how many units you can build in a residential development. And, you know, as is probably implied by the by the uh, title of the book, I tend to think a lot of these standards are arbitrary uh, and they've played a role in, in, in making uh, U.S. cities uniquely dysfunctional. Yeah, uh, that's called a segue. We call it Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. That's Nolan Gray's book. We're going to link it in the show notes. Make sure you buy the book and read its entirety. Let's start right there, though. Um, Arbitrary line. Here's here's a problem we have where it's a language problem because we keep talking about government and zoning and regulations as if there's these things that drop out of the either. No, these are government things, but there's people behind there making those decisions, which means good, bad or indifferent. You get the biases of those people. You get the experience level of those people and you get the competence level of those people demystified a little bit because I think that's part of the problem when we deal with something like zoning is it's like, oh, well, somebody somewhere is doing that. No, there's people doing this. And to really understand the problem, you got to understand the people that are making that decision, right? No, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the way that zoning traditionally certainly was framed was, okay, let's get all the smartest guys in the room and come up with a master plan that's going to control every every little detail for what you can and can't do on every single lot in a metropolitan area over the next um you know, 50 years, right? Uh, so it's very kind of very kind of this mid-century modern kind of idea of, you know, we can we can just get the elites all together and solve this problem um, and deal with problems like incompatible neighbors or deal with problems like coordinating growth with new infrastructure investment. I think exactly, I think you made this point very well. Um, it doesn't end up working out exactly that way. Uh, certain biases come into the picture. Uh, people start using uh, some of these rules uh, as a way to maybe uh, suppress new construction. If I'm a, for example, if I'm a, a property owner, right? If I own uh, some office floor area, it's in my interest to prevent other people from building more of it. So the price just keeps going up. Or if I own uh, residential property in a community, right? It's at least partly to my benefit to block new properties from getting built uh, that increases the value of my asset. Uh, and that's kind of this dysfunctional flow that we've gotten into in many cities. And then, of course, uh, it's been used as a tool for segregation, uh, of course, in the U.S. context, both on the basis of race, but also income. If you can say, hey, um, if you want to build a home in this neighborhood, you have to have at least two acres of land, uh, even though the market might sustain maybe 5,000 square foot lots. If you have the power to say, you know, 
set standards like that, you have the power to determine who can and can't live in any given neighborhood. And so what you see in many U.S. cities is these rules have been uh, used to uh, make housing uh, much more uh, much more unaffordable and have also been used to segregate uh, cities, both on race and class. Yeah, Nolan Gray joining us. Here's the thing. There's certain things in our parlance when it talks about the other side of the tracks is a good one. And people may not realize that comes. That's based in facts, though, because it was like, oh, well, that side of the train tracks isn't desirable property. This side, a lot of this goes back to some basic things like property rights, the tax base thing. That's a huge part of zoning. Talk about that for just a second, because those are some of the elements that go into it that are kind of fundamental. But once we start talking about affordable housing and stuff, we kind of forget about those basic building blocks. So just touch on that real quick. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, so in the book, I sketch out, I think, one of the four big things that have gone wrong with zoning. Uh, the, the first is the they it's, it's made housing much more expensive by making it harder to build and forcing it to be more expensive than it might otherwise have been. It's made harder for people to move to high opportunity areas, maybe thriving cities that are growing. Uh, it's uh, made it easier for, for uh, bad actors to uh, enforce segregation in U.S. cities, and then it's forced cities to take on maybe a more sprawling form that they might otherwise have. And we can get into all of those. Uh, but I think you're exactly right. I mean, this is an element of the book that I actually don't touch on very directly, uh, but the property rights issue, right, is that um, zoning basically puts incredibly strict parameters on what everybody can and can't do with their property. You know, so right now, one of the issues that we're scrambling to deal with, of course, is, well, we need to allow people to actually build maybe something like an accessory dwelling unit or a granny flat in their backyard. That should be legal. In many U.S. contexts, that's illegal. Or uh, you should be allowed to operate a home-based business out of your home, right? Of course, over the last two years, many millions of Americans have started working from home. But in many contexts, zoning actually makes that illegal. Of course, that's a that's a major property rights uh, concern that uh, you know, I think many people rightly have. And before we get into the details of this, since you just mentioned it, I do want to ask you about it is how much of this you, you use the term mid-century thinking. You just talked about the COVID pandemic where people really started embracing technology out of necessity. I think it changed a lot of people's views on things. How much of this is not even the math of it or the politics or the policy? How much of it is just changing generational thought on how we address this issue? Because there seems to be, I know post-COVID, everybody's kind of looking at everything all of a sudden. It's because when you're locked in your house, you start thinking about your house. Let's just put it on a basic mm-hmm. human level. How much of this is just a generational thought change that we're in the middle of and we maybe don't have the nomenclature and the policy to match it all yet? Uh, that's a really great point. I think there's two elements here. I think this was part of a broader project of making the detached single family home the norm. Uh, and in the context of maybe post-World War II, that was fine. We had a lot of land that was very cheap. But now a starter home doesn't look like a detached single family home on a maybe a 5,000 square foot lot in many U.S. cities. In many U.S. cities, a starter home might look like a townhouse or it might look like half of a duplex. Uh, and those are types of houses that we actually make illegal to build today. Land prices have just gone up so much that that, that old uh, Levittown style 5,000 square foot lot uh, just is not economical. Um, and two, I think also zoning has entrenched, I think, a cultural norm of this idea of your neighborhood should never change, right? You move into a neighborhood and when you buy a home in a neighborhood, you're buying uh, some collective right into that neighborhood never, ever changing. You know, healthy healthy neighborhoods and healthy uh, communities are, are are constantly changing, right? And I, the way I frame it to people is like, you can either have all the buildings in your neighborhood remain the same forever, uh, or uh, you can have, uh, you know, the relative demographic composition of your community change, right? So you see so many neighborhoods 
in a place like California, where I am now, where they haven't built any new housing for the past 50 years. So in one sense, you know, they look the same, but in another sense, no young family can afford to buy a home there. There's no children there. Uh, it's mostly folks who are retired, empty nesters. Their, their family, their kids can't afford to live in that community. So they move to a place like uh, Nevada or Arizona. Uh, and the, yeah, the built form of the neighborhoods remains the same, which was the purpose of zoning, but their community for all intents and purposes has, coll has collapsed. And, and this was, I think, this has been a California problem for a long time, but what we're seeing it now increasingly is spread uh, to places in the Mountain West or places in the South. Yep. All the places those folks are going to get away from the problem to start with, ironically enough. Nolan Gray joining us. You bring up something I want to ask you about because it just kind of triggered a thought in my head, though. This is not going to be a one-size-fits-all problem because what is affordable housing in a city, like you said, maybe multifamily, maybe uh, apartments that are affordable, maybe townhouse-style stuff. You go out more rurally, like where I'm from. Look, I lived in a double wide until I was 11. That's affordable housing where I come from. You get a trailer, right? This is not going to look the same everywhere. Is this something where we need to have a set of principles in place and then be a little bit flexible in the application thereof? Yeah, you know, I think one way to approach this issue is to have more state level. So the way we do zoning today is every single municipality gets to write their own zoning code, basically de novo. Uh, so they can come up with their own unique standards. And this makes the whole system very, very complicated. And it also makes it to where maybe a developer in one city can't necessarily build one you know, the next city over without hiring an attorney and a local planner and all these other things that increase costs. Um, but so one thing you can do is you can set sort of baseline state standards to say, as you know, as a few states have now done to say, okay, look, Statewide, if you're in a residential district, uh, you can build an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, statewide, uh, you can operate a home-based business. Uh, statewide, local governments can't force you to build uh, giant parking lots and giant parking garages that don't make any economic sense. Um, and then you say to local governments, hey, within these broad parameters, you can still plan your city, but the most extreme abuses of, of zoning, of course, we're not going to tolerate. Yeah, Nolan Gray joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to dig into this book. He has three cities he uses as examples. Very diverse cities, very different cities, very different parts of the country. Why'd he pick those three? What does they talk about zoning? Also going to get into the arbitrary lines, this great book from Nolan Gray. He's joining us on Hertel, and we'll continue with him right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We are talking to Nolan Gray. He's got a great book out on zoning and urban planning and city planning, how zoning broke the American city and how to fix it. Arbitrary lines. Great title, by the way. Love it. OK, let's dig into this a little bit. You the core of the book, you took three cities as living examples. These are cities most people would know just on name. They're very diverse cities. They're different parts of the country. Why did you pick these three cities as your examples? Yeah, well, I mean, so the main example that I look at in the book is, is Houston, right? So, you know, Houston is unique uh, in that it's a uh, it's the it's fourth largest American city, right? And on track to be the third largest American city. Uh, it's incredibly affordable, uh, despite, a, you know, a few decades of just exponential population and income growth. Uh, and it's also unique in that it's the only major American city that does not have zoning. So what does this mean? This means that Houston doesn't have 
this system wide, the citywide system of regulation uh, that says what uses uh, are allowed on every single property and at what density. Of course, they have a whole bunch of other rules to deal with things like nuisances or uh, preventing development in environmentally sensitive areas, uh, or they even engage in whole bunch of stuff that people generally think of as city planning like parks planning or streets planning but they don't do this sort of weird game that every other city plays where they engage in a system of 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 citywide land use regulation uh through zoning and so you know what gets you is actually a relatively successful city uh they have as i say they have other mechanisms for engaging in city planning uh but they've been able to remain relatively affordable as you know more zoned cities of course now struggle with these issues and this isn't just a social and political and economic issue, though. We saw in Houston, unfortunately, when you have a natural disaster with poor zoning, this stuff can actually be deadly because they went out and, you know, they're building a lot of stuff maybe on land that wasn't really meant to be built on, that wasn't properly zoned. That actually had a huge effect in the city of Houston also. Well, so it's tough. I mean, a lot of the wetlands development in metropolitan Houston was happening in the suburbs, which in most cases have conventional zoning. Uh, and then there are separate... or. Wetlands development is generally dealt with through separate ordinances, right? So you'll have you'll have rules that say what you can and can't build in wetlands. Uh, and of course, you know, I mean, like that was separate of zoning and, and Houston was a little too callous about that going into, for example, uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually not having zoning in Houston is probably a huge asset in the recovery period, right? So, so Houston actually experienced population growth uh, the year that the hurricane hit. Uh, and it's partly because it's so easy to rebuild in, in Houston, right? It, you know, it's, it, properties that get destroyed, you can, very, you can fairly easily rebuild them uh, and then build them to higher standards than you could <clears throat> maybe in a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco, where, of course, there would be much stricter regulatory rigmarole. And the actual regulations make a lot of what currently exists illegal. Uh, Houston, of course, doesn't have all those problems. So it's very easy to build and it's very easy for the city to adapt and change over time. You took a couple of cities that um, maybe not as famous as Houston, which I think a lot of people will be shocked at how big Houston is. It's the fourth largest city and growing. Um, you talk about Minneapolis, you talk about Fayetteville, you talk about Hartford. Uh, Minneapolis, is, of course, is a big metro. Fayetteville, Hartford, more kind of maybe mid-level to large cities. Why those cities? What got your attention there? Yeah, so I mean, all across the country, cities are contending with liberalizing these regulations, right? Because th there's broad recognition now that these rules are standing in the way of letting cities adapt uh, and, and grow over time. Uh, so Minneapolis, of course, uh, abolished a, a policy called single family zoning. This is what I was referencing earlier. Uh, these are rules that basically make it illegal to build townhouses or duplexes or small apartment buildings in the vast majority of most U.S. cities. Uh, Minneapolis scrapped those rules uh, and uh, they're still tinkering with them. Uh, but it's starting to allow for more of this infill housing development. So you can get smaller, more affordable housing typologies in existing neighborhoods, leveraging existing infrastructure. Uh, and that helps to keep the city affordable. Uh, I like the example of, of, of Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, because I think a lot of people tend to think like, oh, OK, you know, big cities have these problems. Big cities are going to do zoning reform. But maybe a midsize college town like Fayetteville, that's not really relevant to us. I'm from Lexington, Kentucky, which is a very, very similar context to Fayetteville. And you look at Fayetteville and they've said, OK, hey, you know, we're going to get we, we actually want more infill development. We want to legalize those Main Street uh, developments, those Main Street storefronts that so often in many small towns just sit empty. Uh, let's get rid of some of the rules that, that block uh, entrepreneurs in our community from leveraging some of those properties and revitalizing some of our streets. And one of the rules that they, they zeroed in on were parking mandates, which say if you want to operate a shop or if you want to build uh, maybe a small apartment building, you have to build a huge parking lot. Right. I mean, this is why. 
you know, you, you drive on any co major corridor in America and there are these huge empty parking lots, parking lots that are so big that they don't even fill up on Black Friday. If they don't fill up on Black Friday, uh, they probably don't need to be built that big. Uh, but so Fayetteville said, you know, we're going to scrap some of these rules. Um, Hartford, of course, in Connecticut, similar story, right? This is much more of a, a Rust Belt dynamic, you know, a city that's experienced population loss. But they're liberalizing a lot of these rules, too, to say, hey, we want people to come back into our community. We want people to invest and build. Let's get rid of some of the regulatory barriers to people doing that. One of the keys to the book that you really wanted to focus on was there's been all these different ideas and thoughts about zoning and urban planning and city planning over the years. You wanted to try to bring them kind of together into a little bit more of one cohesive thing to try to understand the problem. Just for a lay person that doesn't know all the nomenclature, maybe doesn't know a lot about zoning, what's two or three of the things that they should know if they go to like discuss this online with their friends or on social media? They, I'm sure they see the trends every now and then, you know, something will pop off on Twitter or Facebook. What's the couple things they should be looking for in those discussions that should really pique their interest and like, okay, this is something I need to pay attention to? That's a really great question. I mean, I would say, I, I, I would say first, a very common misunderstanding. Zoning doesn't get anything built. Uh, zoning only stops things from being built, right? So for example, when you have a policy like single family zoning and you get rid of it, that doesn't mean that it's no longer legal to build a single family home. That just means that it's now legal to build things other than single family homes, right? Uh, so you, you, you get this confusion quite a lot. Same with parking mandates. People say, well, we can't get rid of parking mandates because we still need parking in our community. Well, the mandate just says we're not going to force anyone to build it. Uh, if a developer still wants to build this parking or feels it's necessary to lease out or sell a space, uh, he or she will build that parking. A mandate just says the government's not going to force you to do it anymore. Uh, that's the first. The second is I would say, you know, c consider the, the downstream cost of a lot of these policies, right? I think a lot of people... Um, they maybe support some of these policies and, uh, you know, concerned about things like community character or maybe extremely concerned about how a, a development's going to change their community. Uh, the alternative is never for a neighborhood or a community to stay the same, as I was kind of saying earlier, right? If you don't build those additional housing units, your, your city's going to change. It's just going to become much more expensive and working class families are no longer going to be able to afford a home. They're going to have to leave. They're going to have to move away. Your city's going to become less diverse, less dynamic. Uh, you know, if you make it hard for that new store, that new business to open up in a storefront, uh, the alternative might just be that that storefront sits vacant as is so often the case in many US cities. Uh, and consider the downstream costs of a lot of these rules, right? You know, if we, if we make it hard, if we add rules and layers and extra onerous processes that make it hard to build, over time, that just makes it impossible for these cities to grow and remain dynamic over time. Yeah, Nolan Gray joining us. He's the author of Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. Let's talk about that fix it part, because we started this conversation talking about it behind all the zoning and the regular, whether you want to call it, you know, land use regulation, zoning, whatever. There's always going to be people behind these policies. If you go to a post zoning America, what's some of the things you put into place to make sure that the same people problems don't pop up again? Because we know policy is only as good as the people that implement them. What would that look like? What would those steps be to keep some of the human factors from ruining whatever comes after zoning if we did repeal it? Yeah. So, I mean, I, this is a, I, I, I critique zoning, but of course I think you still need certain land use regulations. Absolutely. The question is like, how should they be structured? So I think a few things. One is regulate the impacts that people actually care about, right? So in the current system, we say, okay, we don't want to, we don't want a corner grocery coming into this little neighborhood because we're worried that it'll make too much noise and generate too much traffic. So we're just going to ban the corner grocery. Well, I would say if you're concerned about the noise and you're concerned about the traffic, regulate that or put prices on that. 
Um, right. So, you know, we can say, hey, yeah, noisy neighbors are a problem. We're going to have relatively clear rules that are enforced consistently and fairly on noise. Or, yeah, traffic is a problem. Uh, if you're going to put a whole bunch of a, a big giant parking garage on a property, you know, you can pay a fee that covers some of the costs that you're imposing on neighbors. I think that sort of regulation is completely appropriate. And that's really what people want from line use regulation. They want these impacts to be regulated. I would say the second thing is a recognition of the extent to which a lot of these problems solve themselves, right? So if you look at unzoned contexts like Houston, uh, you know, the nightmare scenario of an oil refinery opening up in a suburban cul-de-sac, it just doesn't materialize in practice, right? Uh, these are very different uses that want to be in different places. But then for conflicts that people are concerned about, neighbors are actually very good at coming together and developing emergent solutions to solve these problems, right? So of course, people form neighborhood associations that voluntarily opt into certain land use rules for maybe a community where it's like, yeah, we want this to be a, a neighborhood of detached single family homes. People can voluntarily opt into those rules, but maybe it's not appropriate for the local government to be adopting and enforcing these rules at, at the public expense. Um, and then the third, I think, big piece of it is you do need uh, planning work. And, and we don't do a very good job of this in the US, but you do need people uh, who are stewarding the public realm. You need civil servants doing this work of planning out streets that make sense, planning out parks, uh, regular intervals, planning out where public facilities are going to be. We actually don't do a lot of this work uh, in the U.S. today, and that's why so many U.S. suburbs kind of look like a, a, a mess of winding streets and aimless cul-de-sacs and, and power centers, and you have to drive everywhere, and you can't walk in any context, uh, and there's very little mixture of uses. Uh, we can do some of the physical planning work to actually build communities that people like and then say, hey, we're going to plan out the public realm, and then what you do on your private land, uh, we leave up to you. Uh, Nolan Gray's joining us. All right, let's do a real world example to kind of put a bow on this. Everything we've just learned from you that you explained so well that even I understood most of it. There's a couple of things I'm going to have to Google later. Um, <laughs> let's just take this example because I'm for freedom. I'm generally a free market kind of guy. I want people to expand. I want capitalism to succeed. At the same time, every time I see a strip mall go up, I feel a part of my soul dying because it's just like, it, I, look, I'm happy people are working. I'm glad people are getting their businesses in. I hope the rent ain't too high, which is the case in a lot of those. I think a lot of people feel that way, though. It's like, hey, they have their principles on these things. But then in the real world, when you start building a building somewhere where they go every day, maybe it's a school, maybe it's where they shop. Usually, more and more of those are usually pretty close together. That's a common feeling with people, though. You see it over and over again. How do they start squaring those two things of like, well, I want affordable housing and I want, you know, good urban planning, but I also want things like I like. How do we square those things out in a pluralistic, diverse society? Because that's just a real question, because people are still going to feel that way, even if they have the principles and belief system. Right. So how do we bridge that? That is a real challenge. I mean, I would say uh, to your specific example, the strip mall, I mean, the strip mall is the ultimate product of zoning, right? I mean, you you, you basically say, we're not going to allow small commercial that's integrated into neighborhoods. It's going to have to be in one place and it's going to have to have a ton of parking and it's going to have to be set back 50 feet from the street, right? The strip mall is is a creature of, of zoning. And I would say just to kind of expand that out, I think a lot of the development that people see that they just don't like, that they see maybe as draining uh you know, resources from their community or requires a whole bunch of infrastructure that's very expensive on taxpayers. Uh, a lot of that is downstream of these zoning rules uh, that mandate a very kind of sprawling, low slung, auto oriented form of development and actually actually criminalizes uh, some of the main streets that, that many communities have that they love. Uh, right. So that traditional development of 
ground floor shops and then apartments over top. Not everybody wants to live like that, and I respect that, but a lot of Americans do. And if you actually look at the numbers, right, those inner suburban neighborhoods that have a mixture of maybe a duplex next to a single family home, next to some townhouses with a deli on the corner, maybe a barber shop within walking distance, maybe a doctor's office, maybe somebody's uh, uh, a lady is offering uh, musical lessons out of her home, right? These are the kind of communities that were str that were strong and resilient and that remain extremely desirable. And they're actually completely illegal to build uh, in many U.S. cities today. And I think when you when you sort of make people realize this, it immediately starts to click. The type of neighborhoods that we want uh, so desperately, the, the ones when we have them, we cherish them and we, we actually put historic overlays on them. But then we say you can't build neighborhoods like that anymore. Uh, zoning, of course, is one of the key barriers uh, to building the types of cities that many people uh, so desperately want. Yeah, and not to bash on the strip malls, but there's ways to do that even in suburbia where I know there's a there's a large development. I got to watch it be built because it was a field when I first moved down there. And they, you know, they built the shopping area with the movie theater and the restaurants and all the different various use stuff. And they put the mid-level to middle high range homes, single family homes on one side. And then they put the apartment community on the other side, all same developer, and both are walkable to the shopping in the middle. There's ways to do this that make not everybody happy, but a lot of people happy and everybody say, what's the key here? Is it politically? Is it policy? Is it a ratio between the two? For us that want to advocate with our elected officials, which is where this stuff always goes through, and then the money people get involved. So we're real about this. What's the ratio there between policy and politics and just us, you know, frankly giving a damn for lack of a better term? What's the ratio there to make this stuff better? Yeah, I mean, I would say first at the local level, local governments have huge amount of latitude over a lot of these rules, right? So many U.S. cities and suburbs will have a zoning ordinance that was written, you know, 30 to 50 years ago, and will have a whole bunch of rules that make this type of desirable uh, infill development illegal. Local governments can amend those rules today, right? Uh, they have a huge amount of power. At the state level, it's appropriate, I think, for state legislators to say, let's put up some guardrails on this, right? Let's allow those accessory dwelling units, let's get rid of the parking mandates, let's reintroduce some flexibility uh, back into the system. I would say too, in terms of moving away from zoning completely as a concept rather than just amending it, I'd say get some of these other things right. You know, get the nuisance regulation right. Uh, you know, help communities uh, develop their own sets of rules if they want if they want them. Uh, uh, get the physical planning right, and then put zoning back to a vote. Right, ask people, do you want this institution? In some cases, people will, but I think in many cases, people will say, yeah, actually, you know, our community is better without these rules that that segregate uses or that just don't allow us to actually build any infill. Uh, and you know, once you kind of get to that level, then I think we'll really be able to move past zoning and, and we'll have a much stronger, more prosperous, more diverse uh, American city on the other side. He's Nolan Gray. The book is Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. It's a great book. We've linked to it in the show notes, how you can get it, but let folks know anywhere where you would like them to get it. And until we see you again on Hertel, which I hope is soon, where they can follow you with your social media, your writing, you're doing media for the book, obviously. It's going to be a big success. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you, my friend. Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter, M Nolan Gray, N-O-L-A-N-G-R-A-Y. Um, you can follow me there. I'm sharing thoughts on zoning. Uh, yeah, the book's available pretty much everywhere. I'm, I always say to people, if you have a local bookstore uh, that you want to support, go go uh, grab a copy there, ask that they stock it. Uh, you can, of course, get it on Amazon or Bookshop. Uh, easiest way is to order directly from the press, Island Press, uh, or just uh, request that your local library stock a copy. Uh, but uh there's many ways to get it. We got an audio book coming out uh, shortly. Unfortunately, I'm not the one narrating it. Uh, but uh, yeah, many exciting things. I look forward to hearing from people.
Yeah, it's an important topic. It's one that doesn't get as loud as some other stuff, but it probably should because, hey, we've all got to live here and we got to all live together. We should probably do a better job planning that out. Nolan Gray, thank you so much. We'll definitely have you back to talk more because these issues are never going to go away as long as people are living in America, which I hope is for a long, long time. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you, sir. tell i'm andrew donaldson will 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 look who's back um chris cuomo formerly of cnn who got fired for a multitude of reasons not the least of which was he was using his contacts to help his brother andrew cuomo who was then governor of new york cover up sexual harassment allegations dovetail his media strategy and otherwise use his influence for all kinds of bad stuff to cover up for his brother being a very bad man bad governor and bad a lot of things well, this didn't take long. He's back. A couple of weeks ago, announced he was going to start doing a podcast, and he was on Twitter talking about being a quote-unquote free agent, which helpfully neglects the fact that he was fired and that he was pretty much a pariah to most of the major networks. Now, he has been hired by something called News Nation. Now, that came out of what used to be WGN. It's supposed to be a nonpartisan, more down-the-middle news cycle. They've hired some big names. News Nation, uh, this ain't it, folks. Uh, of course, Cuomo immediately came on, started talking about being a fair arbitrator. That's laughable when you just got fired for basically putting your thumb on the scales of things. Uh, you have no credibility. We would have been better off if he would have stayed wherever. But people of privilege like Chris Cuomo always fail upward and land on their feet somewhere. That's the ultimate sign of privilege. You want to watch him knock yourself out. I can find my news elsewhere. I don't care about bias. Everybody's biased. I care about people who have no self-awareness to how biased they are and want to use their privilege and think they're owed people watching them and paying them money to do so. I would prefer he just stayed wherever he was. He's back. May he sit in obscurity and I hope News Nation's efforts to make him a star fail. Sorry, just how I feel about it. More Hurt Tell right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. As you know, we always try to end on a good note or a happy note or at least some good news. This is a good little nugget out of England. Let's go back across the pond, our friends in the UK, uh, from dailyrecord.co.uk. Generous shoppers in North Lanarkshire, or Lanarkshire, whichever, donated more than 10,000 meals during the supermarket's three-day food drive. This is pretty cool. Tesco shoppers, a uh, major uh, grocery chain over there for the uninitiated, donated a total of 1.3 million meals between June 30th and July 2nd in stores across the UK. And those at the North Lanarkshire accounted for 10,646, which will go to support local food banks and frontline charities. I'm having trouble with that because there's a BBC show called Lark Rise that I like. So I looked at Lanarkshire and I keep thinking Lark Rise. So 
apologize for that one, folks, of that, I'm sure, fine, upstanding town. The items of long-life food donated during the Tesco Food Collection have been shared with food banks and the Trussell Trust Network and Frontline Charities. Um, further to help the charities cope, Tesco has expanded its network of permanent food collection points, which now can be found in every single store all year around, so shoppers can continue to help their local food banks. They are now in local Tesco Express stores as well. Supermarket Giant topped up the recent collection with an additional 20% and have thanked shoppers at their stores for their generosity. Good on them. 1.3 million meals, nothing to sneeze at. People can't eat. They can't do much anything else. So as good at charities as they are, I always like to highlight food charities and food drives because it's the most basic thing we all need, no matter who you are, where you are. So make sure you're checking on each other as we end this edition of Herd Tell. And wherever you are across the street or around the world, we sure appreciate you listening. Let us know how we did at Herd Tell Show on the Gmail, Herd Tell Show on the Twitter or on our personal Twitters of us and our guests. Make sure you're following everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow for more Herd Tell. Y'all be well. We hope you're well fed. And talk to you again real soon. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So much lemon.